As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello there, fellow Flyers. Welcome to a special layover edition of Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Just want to give everyone a heads up right at the beginning that today's episode is what we're calling a layover episode, an episode between two flights. We will not be covering a crash today, so if that's the only thing you tune in for, I'm giving you a fair warning right now. No crash is happening today, but don't worry, we'll have another episode on an air incident from the past for you in the very near future. Today we're going to touch upon a few stories in the world of airline news. Tess has been working on a segment of her own that she's going to share with us that's compelling and I'm sure you're all going to love hearing her voice. And we have an interview with an airline maintenance worker of 30 years that I think you'll find quite educational as well. First on deck we have Miss Tess Andrade. Tess, you want to take it away? Sure, Michael. Thank you so much. So hello, everyone. Today, I'm going to be doing a segment on the top 10 most dangerous airports in the world. I became interested in this topic after an experience I had flying out of La Paz, Bolivia. This was in 2011, the summer after my junior year of college. I just spent my spring semester studying abroad in Argentina and was taking some time to backpack around South America with a couple friends. Hoping to make our way to Lima, Peru, my friends and I showed up at the El Alto airport just outside of La Paz with our bags and a wad of soul, which is the Bolivian currency. After some begging and pleading with airport officials, we ended up securing three tickets to Lima for a flight that left later that day. Now, as most of you guys probably know, I'm a nervous flyer, and if you're one too, you know that the first thing we nervous types do is take a look at the plane we're flying on, really size it up to make sure it's up to our very high standards. 
In this particular case, the plane we boarded was a little smaller than I would have liked, and it felt, for lack of a better word, kind of vintage. It sort of felt like the airplane equivalent of a beeper, which wasn't good in my mind. To make matters worse, my seatmate casually let it slip that this was a dangerous airport to fly in and out of because it's surrounded by these jagged, snow-covered mountains. After takeoff, not only did we experience an uncomfortable amount of turbulence, but I had the sensation that the plane might skim along the snowy mountain caps at any moment. I felt like they were just below us. Needless to say, my seatmate had to hold a very sweaty hand that day. Although El Alto Airport did not make my list, after doing a little research, I did learn that it is known for being the world's highest commercial airport, with a runway that is 13,000 feet above sea level. Now, high altitude, as many of you guys know, means that air density is lower, which impacts the power generated from engines, making it harder to achieve lift. And because the airport's surrounded by these snowy mountains, pilots basically have to make a slam dunk approach, which we discussed in Turkish Airlines Flight 1951. I also read that in October 2019, older 737s were banned at La Paz Airport after a number of landing incidents took place earlier that year. The Directorate General for Civil Aviation didn't clarify whether it was the condition at El Alto Airport that was behind this restriction. I know it may sound obvious, but until this particular flight out of Bolivia, it had never really occurred to me that some airports could be more challenging to come in and out of than others. I'd sort of always thought that all airports were created equal. But what I've learned is there are a number of factors that impact airport safety, including short runways, high altitude, tricky terrain, unpredictable weather conditions, and takeoff and approach procedures. So without further ado, here's the list I compiled of the top 10 most dangerous airports. If you have your phone or computer handy, head on over to our Instagram page to look at photos of the airports I'll be talking about. Some of them you really have to see to believe. So number 10 on my list is Gibraltar Airport in Gibraltar, sometimes called North Front Airport. It's one of the most striking airports in Europe. Originally used as an emergency airfield for the British Navy, the airport's now used for passenger and cargo planes. Located 500 meters from Gibraltar city center, its runway cuts through a fully functioning street, Winston Churchill Ave. This means traffic has to be stopped during takeoff and landing. Apparently there's a stoplight on the road that directs traffic when planes are taking off or landing, and there have been a number of close calls in the airport's history, but it's actually the strong wind shear and turbulence around the Rock of Gibraltar and across the Bay of Algeciras that make landing here especially difficult. Number nine is Princess Juliana International Airport, located on the Dutch side of St. Martin Island, is famous for its proximity to a public beach, where plane spotters flock to watch low-flying planes soar just feet above their heads. 
thrill seekers and aviation enthusiasts have been known to line up along the airport fence to feel the blast of jet engines, which can create 100 mile per hour winds. I read that this has actually unfortunately resulted in a number of injuries and at least one fatality that I read about. But it's not just the airport's location that makes it dangerous, it's the runway, which is just 2,179 meters or 7,148 feet long and originally built for smaller planes. Since a tourism boom on St. Martin, the airport now has to support big boy planes like A340s and Boeing 747s, which need at least 2,500 meters or 8,202 feet to land comfortably. Number eight is Madeira Airport, located near the city of Funchal on the Portuguese island of Madeira. Originally known for being dangerous because of its short runway at only 1,600 meters or 5,249 feet long. But the runway was extended after the TAP Portugal flight 424 accident in 1977, in which 164 people died after a Boeing 727 overshot the runway in windy and rainy conditions before sliding off a steep bank and exploding. Since the airport is built on the side of a cliff, engineers had to extend the runway over the sea using 180 columns to support the extension. This project was undertaken by a Brazilian company called Andrade Gutierrez. No relation to me, by the way. It won the company awards, including the Outstanding Structure Award in 2004 by the International Association for Bridge and Structural Engineering, which I read is basically like the Academy Awards of Structural Engineering. Even after this change, the airport continues to be dangerous due to the strong Atlantic winds and a landing strip sandwiched between high mountains on one side and the ocean on the other. The Portuguese AIP warns that, quote, the airport is located on a plateau on the east coast of Madeira Island. Except for the seaside, ground raises rapidly very close to it. This fact generates very often wind variation and turbulence. Also, severe low altitude wind shear conditions and or microbursts are likely to be encountered. Pilots must undergo additional training to land there, and a limited number of captains are qualified to do it. British Airways posted a pretty cool cockpit video of their approach into Madeira. There's no ILS approach, so they have to navigate visually using waypoints like a banana shed to guide them in. Number seven, Paro International Airport in Bhutan is situated in a valley surrounded by mountain peaks up to 18,000 feet tall. The airport is one of the most dangerous in the world as pilots must maneuver between mountains while fighting strong winds that rush through the valley. The approach to the runway is completely out of sight for the pilots until the last minute as they maneuver between mountains at a 45 degree angle before dropping quickly onto a narrow 6,500 foot runway. Because of this, flights are only allowed to land and take off during the day and under visual meteorological conditions where pilots can fly without their instruments. Only eight pilots in the world are authorized to make this landing. Due to the fast descent that large planes need to make, many rate this airport as the most dangerous in the world. Number six, Tonkontin Airport in Honduras is considered one of the most dangerous airports in the world, especially in inclement weather. A small airport nestled in the mountains, landing here is both complicated and nerve-wracking. 
The airport is also at a high altitude with frequent wind gusts and generally poor weather conditions. According to Interesting Engineering, in order for planes to prepare for descent, they must make a quick 45-degree bank turn to reach the runway in a valley, then rapidly drop altitude, being careful not to scrape the terrain directly underneath. Some have compared this difficult maneuver to landing on an aircraft carrier. In 1989, a Boeing 727-200 crashed into a mountainside on approach, killing 131 people. Since then, at least five more planes have crashed in or around the area. A new airport is currently being built in Komayagoya to replace Tonkontin Airport and is scheduled to be completed in December 2021. Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez said that the new airport would mean, quote, passengers can land in an airport that does not put their lives at risk. Next is an airport that many of you will recognize from our Air New Zealand episode a while back. Number five on our list is McMurdo Station in Antarctica, with a runway constructed entirely of ice. It's built annually when the ocean freezes near McMurdo Station, and it's only usable during the coldest months of the year. The runway is extremely slick, as you might imagine, which means there isn't a lot of room for error, especially when landing. In 1970, there was a crash of a C-121 that still sits off to the side of the runway buried in snow. Apparently, the only aircrafts that are able to land in conditions like this have what's described as ski-equipped landing gears. Some of the airplanes even have jet-assisted takeoffs to help them get up in the air during especially difficult wintry conditions. Since it's dark for many months of the year, pilots are actually trained to land using night vision goggles. Number four, one of the two airports in Greenland capable of serving large aircrafts, Narsarswak Airport was built in 1941 by the USA Ministry of Defense. This airport is dangerous for a number of reasons and is said to be one of the most uncomfortable approaches, both for pilots and passengers. The weather is frequently stormy, which can cause severe turbulence and low visibility, and pilots must contend with strong winds and wind shear in a mountainous area before they have sight of the runway. Then there's the relatively short runway, which is 6,000 feet or 1,823 meters long and slicked with ice. As if that wasn't enough, the pilots have to deal with an active volcano nearby. When it erupts, and it does erupt, a volcanic ash cloud containing tiny particles of silica from melting ice can stall and destroy engines. Number three, Korsheval International Airport is a small airport that serves the elite ski resort of Korsheval in the French Alps. Built into the Alps, the airport is perched at 6,500 feet above sea level with a dangerously short runway at just 525 meters or 1,722 feet long. There's a video of a plane taking off there that actually went viral, and if you look it up, you'll understand why. It has what I like to call a diving board runway with a downward gradient of 18.6%. If the aircraft can't gain enough speed before the drop-off, it simply has to fall off the cliffside and cross its fingers hoping for the best. On approach, there's no visual horizon, and due to the surrounding mountains, there are no go-around procedures. 
Number two is Juancho y Urasquin Airport, located approximately 28 miles south of St. Martin on the tiny Dutch Caribbean island of Saba, known as the original King Kong Island. What makes this airport one of the most dangerous in the world is its extremely short runway, which is just 400 meters or 1,300 feet long, making it the world's shortest commercial airport runway. The runway sits on a rocky outcrop with hills on one side and the ocean on the other. It's a very dramatic sight. Either side of the runway drops into these treacherous cliffs. Although the airport is closed to jet traffic, regional airline propeller aircraft are able to land there under waivers from the Netherlands Antilles Civil Aviation Authority. Finally, what you've all been waiting for, number one on our list, is Lukla Airport, also known as Tenzing Hillary Airport, named after Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary, the first two climbers to reach the summit of Mount Everest. It's widely accepted to be one of the most dangerous airports in the world. Although the town of Lukla is tiny with a population of less than 500, it's a popular jumping off point for anyone interested in visiting Mount Everest or trekking around the area. Nestled in the mountains of Nepal, Lukla Airport is a small airport that is 9,325 feet high. But the most striking aspect of this airport is its runway, which is just 1,729 feet long and perched precariously on a mountain shelf. On one end of the runway is a stone wall, and the other end of the runway dramatically plunges into a 2,000-foot drop-off another diving board runway. It also has an upward gradient of almost 12%, which helps planes slow down when they land. Because of the mountains surrounding the airport, only helicopters and small fixed-wing propeller planes are permitted to land at Lukla, and there are no go-around procedures. Other dangers include high winds, cloud cover, and variable weather conditions. Mist, fog, rainstorms, or snow can show up at the drop of a hat. The weather at Lukla might look completely different from the weather at a neighboring airport and can change while the aircraft is en route. To complicate matters further, electricity on the ground is poor, so pilots often have to depend on what they can see to land. A number of fatal accidents have occurred at this airport in the double digits, but the good news is the Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal now sets high standards for pilots landing at Lukla. Pilots must have completed 100 short takeoff and landing flights, have at least one year flying in Nepal, and successfully completed 10 flights into Lukla with a certified instructor. So that's my list. I hope you all enjoyed it. It's the definitive Tess Andrade top 10 most dangerous airports in the world. I do have a few honorable mentions I'd like to give out just so that nobody feels left out. Congonhas Airport in Sao Paulo. It's an airport we discussed last episode. It's, as you know, located in a very densely populated and bustling metropolis. And as you approach, people have described this sensation that you're about to scrape the tops of buildings as you're landing. In addition, their runways are considered some of the most slippery in the world, resulting in quite a few fatal crashes. Barra Airport in Scotland is the only airport that uses a beach as its runway. Situated on the Bay of Tregmore on the island of Barra, Scotland, its elevation is just five feet above sea level, which means that flight schedules are at the mercy of the tides. 
All three of its sandy runways are underwater during high tide. They just cease to exist. At night, the runways are illuminated with car headlights and reflective strips in the sand, which, in my opinion, is pretty creative thinking. Last honorable mention goes to Gisborne Airport on the eastern edge of New Zealand's North Island. It has three grass runways and only one main runway, which are all intersected by a railway track. Landings must be coordinated with the National Rail Service, which runs the Palmerston North Gisborne Line. So that is my list of dangerous airports in the world. I hope you all liked it. Michael, did you have any takeaways? I, my first takeaway is you did an amazing job. Thank Aww. you for all your research. I found it uh, very dense with information. I feel like you gave us a lot to sink our teeth into. Thank you so much. I liked uh, the Gibraltar airport. I thought that was really interesting how there's a road that runs through the airport Traffic has to come to a stop before a plane can land. It kind of reminded me of being in a car and coming up to a bridge, like a drawbridge, so a ship can go through, but this is so a plane can go through. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like a mundane seeming convenience, but it's totally unique in that you have to wait for a plane to take off. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I wouldn't mind stopping to get a you know front row seat for that. Definitely. Uh, the second one I liked was uh, St. Martin. There was one where you described the planes as big boy planes. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, thank you. I actually, through researching that airport in particular, really want to go visit it at some point because it does seem like for any aviation enthusiast, it's the place to go to see planes. Yeah, I feel like you were telling me there's a bar nearby where people can hang out. I bet it, I hope it has like an aviation themed name, like the Tarmac Bar. I don't know what the bar is called, but I do know they write the flight schedules on a chalkboard, which nice. is pretty cool. They should call it like the emas area or something uh i like the madeira island one you got to deal with wind you got to deal with the mountain apparently you have to get your bearings by seeing a banana shed was that a joke (laughs) no that was real and you can see that in the video that i talked about the british airways pilots pointed out that's crazy that like air traffic control isn't giving you more direct things and look out for the banana shed once you see the banana shed you're gonna want to land the plane (laughs) once you see the banana shed you're golden (laughs) Uh, you mentioned a Bhutan airport where only eight pilots could land. Yep. Yeah. Very exclusive. Only the best. Either those pilots are working all day long because of the only eight pilots that can go there or that airport doesn't get a lot of action. I don't know which. It's probably a mixture of both, but those pilots definitely have their work cut out for them. Yeah. Uh, the McMurdo Sound Airport. I liked, I liked hearing McMurdo. Brings me back to Air New Zealand. Mm, yeah. Brings, brings you back to a simpler time of... The Air New Zealand episode. Yeah, the good old days. Uh, the Greenland Airport with the volcano. That's pretty crazy. I know. That one is so crazy. I think the volcano seems to be the icing on the cake, but there are a lot of other factors that make it unsafe as well. Yeah, and towards the top of your list, I think at number three and number one, you had two airports that were both kind of diving board airports those seem pretty scary i don't know how comfortable i'd be to get in a plane just knowing you're going to shoot off seems like if you make any mistake whatsoever you're in trouble yeah courchival airport in the french alps and lucla airport both have a similar vibe they both have what i've been calling diving board runways and you should definitely check them out online there are tons of videos you can watch of planes taking off from them and it's really kind of startling to see Yeah, I need to check that out. I don't know that I want to sign up to be a passenger on any of those planes, but I definitely want to check out the videos. Thanks again for your hard work. No problem. It was my pleasure, Michael. And now it's time for our interview. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today on PCPC, we are joined by a 30-year veteran of the airline maintenance industry. Let's welcome to the show George Santa Morris. How's it going, George? Oh, going well. How's life in 2020 treating you? Different. It's uh, it's definitely different. Um, where are you working these days? Where have you worked in the past? Well, right now I'm working for UPS Airlines. Uh, I have worked for Pan Am uh, Airlines, Evergreen International Airlines, and Delta Airlines. Man, you've been around the block, huh? Yeah, I moved around a little bit when I first started, yes. So how does the job in airline maintenance work? I'm sure you're, you've had different positions throughout your career, but let's say just for your regular airline maintenance employee, what does their day look like? Well, there's, I guess there's a couple of different types of days. Uh, if you're a line maintenance employee, and most of the time my career has basically been in line maintenance, mm-hmm. uh, you come into work and that work will probably be on night shift. Uh, and more than likely on weekends. Yeah. Uh, you you'll, you won't have weekends off, and you'll be working nights for the first uh, oh, five, ten years, really, depending on the size of the outfit. But you come into work, get your work assignment from your crew chief or your lead or your foreman, whatever the case may be, and uh, go out there and start working. Uh, in a line operation, you won't do anything more than uh, they used to be called A-checks. They're really not A-checks anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, like I, we had spoken before, a lot of this has evolved. But uh, you do overnight work or through checks. You walk the airplane off, take a look at what's going on with it. Uh, you have a checklist that you work through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the checklist tells you what to do, what to look for. And a lot of times it'll tell you what your limits are, like tires and brakes. They all got limits. Yeah. But you walk around, you're looking for leaks, damage, birds hit airplanes, rocks hit airplanes, unknown things hit airplanes, uh, and you're looking for damage. That's interesting. When you have an employee that's doing that, when you've done that in the past, are people encouraged to become an expert on a particular model of plane, or are you just looking at different planes all day? You look at different airplanes. Again, it depends on the airline. When uh, 
I'll throw for for instance out there. When I worked for Pan Am, I was what was called a floor mechanic. I didn't touch electronics and I didn't touch the sheet metal, the the actual you know skin of the airplane if it was damaged or the flight controls. I changed brakes, I changed tires, I changed pumps, you know hydraulics and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Pan Am had avionics people for the electronics and the electrical work. They had sheet metal people. Uh, structures people for the structural work of the airplane uh moved on to delta and evergreen and i basically did everything on the airplane mm-hmm. and, and at ups we do everything on the airplane we didn't really specialize on airplanes uh one night i might you know at pan am i might have had a 747 727 and then an a300 mm-hmm uh, well, usually at Pan Am, I only worked on one airplane on the overnight, but that, that's the idea. I would walk in and I would have different things to do on different airplanes. That's interesting. So would you say there's a huge difference between, you know, working on a tire, working on the brake system of a Boeing 737 versus an A300? Between an Airbus and a Boeing, yes, there is. there are some differences in the system. Changing a tire is changing a tire is changing a tire. Yeah. You pretty much can do that across the line. But if I'm tr- troubleshooting a system, if a flight crew writes up, you know, my brakes on the left-hand side of the airplane are hot. I'm going to look at different things between – right now, you know, I have A300s in my stable of airplanes and a bunch of Boeings and MD-11s. Uh, so I would look for different things for that same problem. On a Boeing, I'd look at the brake metering valve on the – Airbus, I would look at the brake control unit. There's just different philosophies when they build the airplane. So, yeah, you do have to know a little bit about the airplanes. Yeah. There are some differences. The maintenance manual is basically God or the fault in isolation manual on the Boeing side. The uh, <clears throat> TSM, the technical support manual on the uh, Airbus side. And the LAMM, the oh, I forgot what it's called, the LAMS on the MD-11 side, they all kind of work towards helping the mechanic figure out what's going on with the airplane. That's interesting. What is the certification and training like for airline maintenance employees these days? Is it increased over your career? Um, do you have regular checks? Do you have to get recertified or do you just get certified once and it's done? How does it work? This certification hasn't changed in... Oh, probably 60 or 70 years. It's found in part 65 of the FARs. But uh, I'm an airframe and power plant mechanic. That's my certification. I went to, I happen to have gone to school for it when I lived in New York. Mm-hmm. You can get it through experience. Let's see, the school is two and a half years. I can't remember what the hours are. It's actually hours, but it rolls into two and a half years, and you can get an associate's degree while you're doing that. Yeah. Experience levels is 18 months of airframe, and airframe means systems, plumbing, pneumatics, and structures, and then 18 months of power plant, which is basically engine-related items, or a combined 30 months mm-hmm. to, be able to be able to sit for the test, to be certified to take the test. Mm-hmm. And then you take a written test a practical test, and then an oral test. And all that's administered by the FAA through a through designated mechanic uh, examiners. And then you have your so, certification, and then once you get the job, don't you still have some like retraining here and there? We call it a license to learn. 
Mm-hmm. Once you get your, your uh, certificates, you go out and look for work. You get a job. If you get a job with an airline, they will pay to train you on particular airframes mm-hmm. and systems. Like we, ha- we have an, electri- an electrical class. Uh, when I was at Delta, I took an electrical class. Uh, and we have different levels of classes for each airplane. We have a, you know, a systems class, a avionics class, and power plant class for each of our aircraft. So their mechanics become well-rounded. The FAA, now this is a company level issue. The FAA just says you have to work on an airplane or directly supervise people working on an airplane every two years mm-hmm. in order to remain current. I don't have to take a test to remain, maintain currency. Mm-hmm. I just have to work on the airplane or supervise people working on the airplane once every two years. Yeah, so you have to just keep your you have to stay in the ball game basically, and they'll yeah. let you keep on being a player. That makes sense. Right. Uh, one thing you were telling me that I thought was pretty interesting is in our Aloha episode that we had a couple episodes ago, I had mentioned that Aloha wasn't doing their D checks correctly all at the same time, and you mentioned to me that that's kind of commonplace today that D checks are kind of broken up and and put into C checks or B checks. I thought maybe you could talk about that a little bit since you were knowledgeable about it. Yeah, D-checks are very expensive. They take the airplanes out of service for a long time. Depending on the age of the airplane, uh, it can be you know a month and a half to three or four months that airplanes sit on the ground. And what is happening now is what's called we're calling them segmented D-checks or C-level checks. And the C-checks, we take D-check tasks, put them into C-checks. And the C-checks are broken up into like C1, C2, C3, C4s. Mm-hmm. And say you would do the D-check task. Now, I'm not in programs, so I don't, I'm, I'm not going to get into specifics. I don't, I don't know exactly what tasks are put somewhere. Yeah, We may do, say, D-check tasks for the left wing during a C1. Mm-hmm. And then D-check tasks for the right wing during a C2. And then... Section 41 tasks or D-check tasks on Section 41. Section 41 is the forward section of any Boeing airplane. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything from basically the front door to the nose. But we may do those D-check tasks in the C3. And, and like I said, we, we just break them up. And that, that makes the C-check a little bit longer Mm-hmm. But it's not three months or four months. Doesn't take a plane out of service for a super long period of time. But from what I understood, a C check was still pretty significant, right? Yeah. Oh, a C check is three, three to three to five weeks easily. Yeah. So it's no joke. It's not like things are being you know skimmed over on some night, night shift. You're still having. Is there a different quality of inspector between an A check versus a D check or a C check? Do they bring in like? more people that are tailored to looking at a specific thing with these kind of like deeper C and D checks, or is it the same person doing everything? No, it would typically be the same people. Uh, at an airline, it would probably be a, mecha- a certified mechanic, an A&P. But if it's, if it's uh, sent out to an MRO, they're basically contractors. Yeah. If they're sent out to them, typically you'll have people who are not certified mechanics working on the airplane, but they're overseen by mechanics. Mm-hmm who are working on the airplane. Now, there's a lot of, uh, of these MROs are where they crank out mechanics. They yeah. get the experience to, be, to test to become mechanics. 
And they may continue to work for the MRO now, and that's, I don't want to call it a supervisory position, more of an oversight position, Mm -hmm. or move into a supervisory position, or they'll go out to an airline after that. Yeah, well, whatever they seem to be doing seems to be working, because I don't hear a lot about uh, UPS crashes that much. Uh, No, well, crashes are are uncommon anywhere you look, really. You look at a... reliability and you know downtime on airplanes that kind of thing really to look at what a maintenance program looks like um you were explaining to me in an email that there's a difference between a service bulletin and a faa airworthiness directive i thought that was an interesting distinction that maybe you could tell people about yeah service bulletins manufacturers put out service bulletins a service bulletin can be anything from a, a cosmetic item to uh, something that's safety related to a reliability item. I would look at a service bulletin as being uh, almost like options on on a car when you buy a car. Mm-hmm. Okay, except like- that you can add it. You could add it on a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and a lot of times they're reliability. Those kind of things are reliability driven. Now, airworthiness directives come from the FAA. They're mandatory, and a lot of times. They are derived from maintenance bulletins or service bulletins. Mm-hmm. The FAA just says, hey, you know what? Boeing says that this needs to be done to make the airplane safer. We're going to turn this into an airworthiness directive. An airworthiness directive is an extension of the FARs. Uh, so it goes through a process also when the FAA, the FAA puts it out there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar at all with how any federal regulation is put together, but they put out a, uh, they promulgate, propose their worthiness directive and ask for comments from interested parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's usually a comment period, uh, 30 days or so or 90 days. Everybody comments on it. The FAA makes changes or they just roll it out as is and mm-hmm. it basically becomes law. That's interesting. So you're saying like a service bulletin is kind of like an update from the manufacturer saying this is an option. We've discovered this. This might help you out. And sometimes uh, the FAA notices that it becomes kind of a safety issue. And if they put out that airworthiness directive, that's kind of got the power of law almost, right? Yeah. Oh, oh it is the power of law. It is a, it is a federal it, – it becomes a federal law at that point, mm-hmm. uh, a, a federal regulation that the airplane has to comply with. Otherwise it can't or the fly. Manif- or the, that the, the, that the uh, operator has to comply with. And there's so many. Some of them are just inspection levels. Hey, you need to change the inspection interval from 10,000 hours to 8,000 hours. Yeah. It's something as simple as that. Or they may be some complex stuff that's say, hey, you need to remove this engine, uh, send the engine back to the overhaul shop and pull out this bearing because this bearing part number or you know something's going on with it. So some of them are in-depth and some of them are uh, – very high level. Yeah. But uh but an airworthiness directive has the force of law. Well. Now, it doesn't mean it gets done immediately. There's always a time period in there because you can imagine that you know an airline that operates say the Max the Max right now, the 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 Dash 8 Max is a is a special case. Yeah. Because it's a, it's but but those software changes are going to come 
first as service bulletins and then uh, airworthiness directives. Interesting. Well, now I, now we know about that. Thank you for sharing the information. Have you noticed UPS's systems change at all due to the pandemic? Have you guys been busier? Have planes been more up in the sky, slower? Oh, we've been busier. Busier because everybody's buying stuff on Amazon. and Yeah, we're moving product. That's good. I guess it's good to stay busy. Uh, wh- what planes exactly did you oversee? What planes are in the UPS fleet? Well, in the UPS fleet right now are the uh, 757, the 767, the 747-400, the 747-8F, the A300-600, and the MD-11F. Hmm. So you got a lot of different uh, planes to look after and take care of, huh? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a pretty good sized fleet and varied fleet. Over your career, have you had any moments where you were inspecting a plane personally or heard of a story where you found something very significant? Is it uh, something that happens on a regular basis or can you work a whole career and not see something that was a glaring issue? Uh, I guess you'd have to define glaring issues. I've gone up to airplanes that have been hit by fuel trucks. I have found uh, broken bolts holding components on. I once went on an airplane inspecting an engine and found a mount bolt on a uh, hydraulic pump. Yeah, you find lots of things. When you look, you you find you find things. So it's common. You talk to a lot of airline pilots and they'll say, hey, I've flown my entire career and never had kind of this major issue where I was, you know, fearful that the plane was going to have some catastrophic issue. But you're saying as an inspector of planes or as an airline mechanic, it's pretty regular to see issues that you got to deal with. Well, again, you have to talk about what the issues are. I've never found, you know, uh, well, I have, uh, I was going to say, I've never found a, a landing gear actuator that was snapped, but yeah, we found the landing gear actuator <laughs> snapped once when I was at Pan Am. Yeah. Uh, it's good that you found that. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the whole idea of aircraft maintenance. Aircraft maintenance is broken up into, I like to think three areas. There's routine work, there's routine, non-routine work that would be like tires, brakes, and leaks and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's non-routine work, the stuff where you know where we have to get in there and and really get into troubleshooting a system. Flight crew writes up that the landing gear didn't go up. Well, why didn't the landing gear go, didn't go up? Yeah. We get these write-ups, you know. And there's there, that's when you get into troubleshooting. You know, autopilots are always a big big deal is trying to keep an autopilot working when it fails is determining airplanes today are so complex all these systems talk to each other it used to be that uh, chapter 22 which is autopilot didn't talk to anything at all Mm -hmm. it just flew the airplane and then it evolved into talking to the navigation system and then it evolved into talking to the ground prox warning system and talking to the engines the airplane is very complex now and when you start getting problems in one area it manifests somewhere else so it's uh there's problems out there flight crews see one airplane and the redundancy built into the airplane and the the inspection levels we do the the preventative maintenance we do the routine work the preventative work keeps them from seeing the big issues. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. No, I was just kind of wondering if uh, 
it seems like there's a lot of jobs you can do in life if you, you know, work in a restaurant and sometimes you can kind of go on autopilot and just do the job and maybe you don't have to keep this heightened sense of, you know, alertness to your job. But it seems like if you are a airline maintenance employee, the entire time you're working, you need to be wide awake and paying attention to every stitch of what you're doing. You, you do, you need to be paying attention to what you're doing. And it's not just because of the task that you're doing, but it's because we're, we're trained to look around while we're working. I couldn't tell you how many times, you know, people working for me or when I was working, I'd be greasing something, you know, lubricating an aileron or something and look over and find a damaged wire Mm -hmm. or, you know, or some delamination on a flight flight control surface. This is stuff that's all within the area of where you're looking. The maintenance program takes that into effect is that mechanics are going to be there doing this task. We want them looking in this, in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The guys, the guys working on it. When, when I work, when I'm out at an airplane, I don't work on them anymore. And I don't really touch them anymore, but I do go visit airplanes to talk to my people. Uh, we're always looking at the airplanes. We're always looking to, to what what do they look like. During the Aloha Airlines one, there was a passenger who mentioned she noticed a crack. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm that guy that when I get on an airplane, I look for this stuff. It's it's not some kind of you know paranoia. It's routine. It's uh, it's normal for me to do that. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting um, when you see that the entire flight experience, planes going up in the sky and you getting safely where you want to go, so many people are involved in that process from the people that design the plane to the people that manufacture the plane to the pilots to the flight attendants, even passengers. That's kind of the point of the Aloha episode too, is passengers can participate in that event as well. In addition to someone like you that works in airline maintenance, that uh, you, we all have a responsibility for using all the knowledge that all of us have to making sure things get um, along safely. Yeah, I've always been a proponent of see something, say something. If it doesn't look right, it probably isn't. Yeah, and the worst case scenario, you bring it up to somebody and they say, oh, that's actually normal. That's not a big deal, but we appreciate uh, your suggestion or your attention to that and the fact that you care. Yes. Well, George, I want to say uh, thank you to reaching out to us. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I hope you have a great 2020. Thanks for your hard work and getting us the goods we need. <laughs> yeah, we try, and I hope you guys get out on your vacations. I know you guys out on, on the West Coast, they're a little uh, a little bit tighter than we are right now, I think, in the yeah. bigger cities. Yeah, it's not. we got the beach, which is open. You can social distance there which is nice. And, uh, you know, we all got to do what we got to do. We're going to make it through 2020. It's going to be okay. Yeah, it will be. Well, again, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. Well, I appreciate it. And you're welcome. Thanks again to George for chatting with us. Tess, I have a few stories from the world of airline news. Would you be interested in hearing them? Yes, I am very interested. Michael hit me with them. Since August, 2018, Chinese pig populations have dropped off drastically Estimates have the drop at around 50% due to an outbreak of African swine fever that has swept through domestic herds. China is the world's largest producer and consumer of pork, so this catastrophic hit to their pig population has caused the price of pork in China to skyrocket. The price for pork has more than doubled, and China has been forced to import large quantities of pork from the United States to keep up with demand. 
In order to combat this pig shortage, Russian cargo carrier Volga Dnieper has been flying in breeding pigs from France to China in a Boeing 747 jumbo jet. These breeding pigs will hopefully help repopulate the local supply of hogs in China and aid in repairing the damage done to herds caused by the disease. So far, over 3,000 pigs have been packed up in wooden crates, loaded into the belly of 747s, and flown over 6,400 miles to China. Once the pigs are offloaded from the cargo planes, commonly medical supplies and medical equipment manufactured in China are loaded onto the plane and flown across the world to countries like France, Germany, and Russia to help fight the pandemic. So, Tess, do you think the time has come for pigs to start signing up for frequent flyer miles? Michael, I think it's great that these pigs are hitting the skies. I, I'm happy for them. They should get out, travel, experience the world, and hopefully take some good pictures. Yeah. Who knew that 2020 was going to be the year that we'd all have to stay home and pigs would be out there exploring the world? I mean, it seems pretty appropriate for these times <laughs> we're in. I think you, Tess, should go out and find some people on the street Ask them for $10,000 a piece, and if you can get anyone to say to you, I'll give you $10,000 when pigs fly, you can explain this story to them and demand full payment immediately. I think I'd make a lot of money that way. Tess, there's a new trend sweeping through airlines across the world. Airlines are asking passengers to fill out pre-flight health checks. United Airlines rolled out this new policy on June 9th, and Alaska will implement a similar policy starting June 30th. United asked passengers to confirm that they haven't had any COVID symptoms or been in contact with anyone that has had symptoms in the prior 14 days to the date of the flight. Frontier Airlines has a similar questionnaire checklist, and they've been taking passengers' temperatures before boarding. Airlines are continuing to require all passengers to wear masks on their planes and have also been advertising their enhanced cleaning procedures to try and ease the minds of nervous flyers that have been staying away from flying the friendly skies due to fear surrounding the pandemic. With two major airlines already embracing pre-flight health checks, one would think that more are sure to follow suit in the upcoming weeks. So, Tess, I guess passengers are going to be joining pilots and doing a pre-flight check of their own before pushing off from the gate, eh? Yeah, pre-flight health check. Yeah. Maybe airlines will go overboard and require passengers to do a pre-flight check, after takeoff health checks, on approach health checks, landing health checks. Maybe a mid-year checkup just to see how they're doing. Yeah, like a like a, a C check. I want to fly somewhere with you and we can do an approach health check together. I can be like, temperature, and you can be like, 98.6, sir. Dry cough, negative, sir. Tray table up, up and locked, Captain. Uh, I don't like this scenario where I'm your co-pilot. <laughs> I just want to be captain all the time. I know, you do. Power trip. You're on a power trip. <laughs> I found an interesting story on Airbus online this past week. Airbus has been receiving many requests over the past few months from airlines to delay delivery on ordered planes due to the drop in demand for travel due to the coronavirus outbreak. Many airlines have pulled planes from their existing fleets and moved them into storage in response to the decrease in flights over the spring and early summer of 2020. Some airlines have even refused to take calls from Airbus. Airbus's chief executive, Guillaume Fari, said in regards to airlines refusing to receive their Airbus planes in an interview, it will remain, I hope, the exception because we've always tried to find a different route than going to court. But if and when airlines, and it is happening, have no other choice than fully defaulting and not proposing something better than nothing or are not willing to do it, then lawsuits will happen. 
Pretty strong words from the chief over at Airbus. We'll see you in court, essentially. Tess, what do you think? Should airlines receive the planes that they've ordered, or do you feel compassion for their situation, and do you think Airbus should store their plane until these airlines are in a better position to put it to use? I feel compassion for the airlines. I don't think it's their fault that they don't need these planes. I think that the um, airplane manufacturers should work with these airlines to accommodate this situation that we're in. Yeah, I'm in the other camp. I'm in Airbus's side on this one. I feel like if you order anything in life, you need to pay for it and receive it. If you're in a restaurant and you order a sandwich, you can't just change your mind 10 minutes into ordering and leave the restaurant and not pay for it. I think these planes are, you know, $100 million a piece. And if Airbus takes this order and, you know, has their employees make this, there's a lot of costs that go along with making that plane. Design costs, manufacturing costs, and uh, it's... It's weird to say, hey, something changed. I'm no longer interested in that thing that I ordered. That's a good point. Hopefully they can work out a deal where both parties are satisfied. Yeah, I feel like the CEO is basically just saying, we're suffering enough. Pay for these planes that you ordered. If you are you don't need more planes in the future, don't order them. For our last story, Play, the new proposed Icelandic airline that we've mentioned in the past, is inching towards making de- their debut on the world stage. CEO Arnar Mar Magnusson gave an interview to an online website, the Reykjavik Grapevine, and he mentioned that the airline could start flying within weeks, maybe even days. Magnusson said that 36 pilots are currently on the play payroll. The airline has secured several A320 planes with passenger capacities of 200. He also mentioned that he expects that many of the flight attendants for play will be former employees of Wow Air that he's established and maintained contact with over the past year. So, Tess, Play might be bringing tourists back to Iceland again soon. Iceland has announced that tourists from a few cities in Europe will be permitted to fly into the country starting on June 15th. Some of those cities are London, Munich, Amsterdam, Berlin, Copenhagen, Oslo, Zurich, and Stockholm. Upon arrival, passengers will have to take a COVID-19 test before being allowed to travel throughout the country. For now, it's expected that Americans will be welcomed into Iceland again starting on July 1st. That might change if the number of cases in the U.S. starts to rise. I was thinking about it, and Iceland seems like a fantastic place to vacation during a pandemic. The plane ride would scare me because it's pretty long, but once you're in Iceland, you're outside in the fresh air the whole time hiking and walking around in nature. Probably pretty easy to practice safe social distancing. What do you think, Tess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been there, and it's a great place to just get away in nature and not be near people. So, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I think I'd like to go there and have a nice $12 cold beer. Pretty pricey there. Exactly. Well, I think that's going to do it for our layover episode of PCPC. Thank you to Tess for her hard work. Thank you to George for the interview. Tess, you want to say anything to the people before we go? I am honored to be here, Michael. Thank you so much for embracing me with open arms. And I love everyone, all, all of our listeners are so wonderful and thank you for having me thanks for being a part of it and uh, i'd like to thank our listeners thanks to the patreon crew at patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod thanks for the reviews thanks for saying hi on twitter and i hope you guys hang in there this week we're gonna have a full episode coming up in the next week or so and uh, i love you guys thanks for listening we'll talk again soon bye bye